Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Most weeks we have a pretty clearly defined first segment and second segment, but this week we pretty much split the show between two superb artists. First up, Sonia Clark. The Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia is exhibiting Sonia Clark Monumental Cloth, The Flag We Should Know. It's up through August 4th. The exhibition considers a common dishcloth that was used as the flag of surrender by General Robert E. Lee's Army of the Potomac at Appomattox. Sonia Clark's address of the surrender flag asks why we know the infamous Confederate battle flag instead of the South's most prominent surrender flag. The exhibition includes five installations on two of Fabric Workshop's floors. Clark's work is informed by that original surrender flag, which is now in the collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Clark teaches at Amherst College. She is the recipient of a United States Artist Fellowship and many other major grants, including a Pollock Krasner Award, the Anonymous Was a Woman Award, and a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship. She was previously a guest on episode number 150. I'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com, too. On the second segment, Analia Saban. But first, Sonia Clark, after a break. From the Buddhas of Bamiyan to the temples of Palmyra, why is the world's cultural heritage being erased? On April 30th, Getty President James Cuno and author Terence Ward explore answers to this question and offer ideas about how to stop the continuing destruction. Get tickets and learn more about this free talk at getty.edu slash 360. Explore what it means to be Southern in Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings, the first major retrospective of this celebrated American photographer on view now at the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. For more than 40 years, man has made hauntingly beautiful photographs that address overarching themes of existence. Featuring over 120 images, this exhibition shows how the American South emerges within man's work as a powerful and provocative force that continues to shape American identity and experience. On view through May 27th. Visit mfah.org m-a-n-n for more. And we're back. Sonia Clark, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Always happy to be here with you. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is not, definitely not, your first artwork making or using or addressing flags. Before we get to the work in the show, why do flags continue to interest you? Well, I think there's a way in which we live surrounded by cloth. Probably all your listeners are wearing or touching cloth in some way right now. And so there's a way in which its ubiquity yields a kind of language. And then because flags become cloth as symbol, then they have this great power that way too. So our bodies are attached to cloth and then the cloth can stand in for political movements, can stand in for nations and nationhood, can stand in for wars and battlegrounds and politics and power and all of those things. So it's a nice nexus between cloth and symbol. So tell us the story of this particular flag of truce. What was uh, its origins for you and which Confederate Army's truce flag are you referencing in your work? Okay, so here's the thing. I am going to do this disclaimer where I realize that I'm speaking to a historian, but I am not one. So here's the thing. As an artist, I feel very strongly that one of the things that that I have the privilege of doing is amplifying things that I think that need to be amplified. So I can certainly tell you the story of how I ran across this, uh, as it's labeled at the American History Museum at the Smithsonian, D.C., in my hometown, as the Confederate flag of truce. So I was on a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship 
in 2011. And this is something that the Smithsonian does. It invites artists to apply for these fellowships and then opens up the museum's vast collections so that we might make an artwork that is inspired by some of their collections. So I was there actually housed at the African Museum looking at hair and textiles and combs as those often affect a lot of the work in my practice. But taking a break from that, I decided to go to the, every day I would go to a different museum on the mall and just check it out. So I went to the American History Museum. Certainly I had been there before. You know, again, I'm from D.C., so I'd certainly been there before. But since I had been there last, the Star Spangled Banner had been reinstalled. The, the actual flag, I should point out, yeah. Yes, yes, sorry, not not the not the anthem, but the, the flag that inspired the anthem was installed in its own room, and it's quite a large piece of cloth. I'm speaking about powerful and political cloth. And then I meandered upstairs, and there was an exhibition, and what actually caught my eye in that exhibition was Lincoln's Top Hat, as I had made a couple of pieces using $5 bills that, of course, have Lincoln on them. So I said, OK, let me go check out Lincoln's actually actual top hat. And right in the vicinity of Lincoln's top hat was this half of a dishcloth folded in half. So if it was the full dishcloth, it would have just been a quarter of it that was available. And it said Confederate truce flag. And I thought, wait, what? <laughs> I really was like, what is this? And how come I don't know this? And you know, like I'm a textile person, but more than that, you know, I'm I'm an American, and why don't I know what this is? So, just this sort of disconnect of this star-spangled banner, this huge, huge, huge cloth, and then coming up and seeing this very humble dishcloth that had been repurposed as the Confederate truce flag at Appomattox, not far from where I lived. You know, I lived in Richmond, Virginia at the time. And I just wanted to know more and more and more about it. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to amplify the cloth and to really question this notion of why, why I didn't know it and why we collectively don't know it. First, I thought, well, I don't know it, but certainly other people might. But that wasn't the case. Yeah, once, once you pointed it out in your work and I started reading a little bit about this dishcloth truce flag, a more unlikely four words have never been used together. I, I, I became amazed that I too had, had, had never heard of it. And we'll get into some more details about the relationship between your work and, and that object at the Smithsonian American History Museum in a moment. But one quick bit of descriptive background, the, the 1864 cloth is kind of off-white. A crossword puzzle fan might call it a crew, and it's fringed. And your monumental is 10 times the size of the actual Confederate truce flag. Why the enormity? Why was, the, why was making the thing so damn big crucial? Well, literally to amplify it. I mean, you know, it's, um, it's sort of this logical way of thinking about if something is in our midst, but not being paid attention to, especially in the context of um, the conversations around monuments, Confederate monuments that had been going on and continues. I thought, well, we need to make this cloth monumental. And so one way of doing that is by making it large. I would also argue that it is monumental, but it's been a quiet monument for many years. 
I mean, if you go on the Smithsonian website, you find it. It's not that I found something in the, you know, in the back rooms in a dusty box. It, it was available for anybody who happened to be in the Smithsonian while it was on view. It doesn't happen to be on view right now, but while it was on view. But I would even say, how many people know the Confederate battle flag that we know so well? With shorthand, we call it the Confederate flag. How many people know that so well and yet haven't seen the original? So this idea of how something can be monumental just because it plays in our psyche, it lives in our minds. And that is actually one of the power, powerful things about symbol, is that symbols can be more monumental than a hunk of metal or a chunk of marble. Because right now, and I always say this to people, when I'm introducing the piece to them, I'll say, could you draw a Confederate flag right now? And most people say to me they could. I'm not necessarily proud of that, <laughs> but, but they could draw a Confederate flag. And I said, have you ever even heard of the truce flag? What is that? When I say that, what, what comes to mind? And most people draw a blank. So there's been a really successful campaign around the propaganda of one of the many Confederate battle flags that we have come to know as the Confederate flag. And that successful campaign was really waged by the Ku Klux Klan post-Reconstruction. Is the size of monumental a certain metaphor for possibility or, or missed opportunity? I think so. I think the missed opportunity and the possibility is really around the discourse of this particular symbol. So, uh, you know, the, the exhibition is asking the question, what would it mean if this flag, this symbol, the truce flag, was the symbol that had endured. Instead, we have this association with one of the Confederate battle flags. And, and I think if there's this possibility for a kind of engagement with what a truce means, what surrender means, what truth and reconciliation mean, what, what actually would happen in the collective minds of this nation, and also globally, I will say, if the if the truce flag is what people remembered from the Civil War, as opposed to the Confederate battle flag, which actually I have seen in Italy, in Canada, in Brazil, I see the bat that Confederate battle flag in many, many, many places, and right here in the United States of America, we don't know the a piece of cloth that helped to end the Civil War, helped to broker peace. I have a couple questions about some references that may be in your work, but that also might not be. And and one of them is about the color of the flag I referenced earlier. It's it's pretty darn close to white. Monumental is, at least as experienced in JPEG form, I won't get to see it myself for a couple of weeks, if anything, a bit whiter. Is the whiteness of the original object and of your object coincidence or accident or fundamental to the piece? True flags, by definition, are white. <laughs> right, but there is a, a whole other layer of whiteness that could be read into particularly your work, given that your work is more intentional than the dishcloth originally was. <laughs> well, actually, what I, to be honest, Tyler, what, we, what the Fabric Workshop and Museum helped me do and the fabrication of the enlarged reproduction of the dishcloth was to try and color match it. So... Uh, so Monumental, which is the 15 by 30 foot reproduction of a dishcloth that is 10 times, 10 times larger than the original or the original before it was cut in half, 
the the original has sort of yellowed with age, and so we tea stained this one so that it would refer back to the original. And then I should let you know that there's another piece in the exhibit at the Fabric Workshop and Museum that is called Many, and that is comprised of a hundred dishcloths that are true to the scale of the original, but they are very bright white. So this idea that one is pointing to a truce flag that has aged over time, and the other is living, and that many, those many are living in this contemporary time and space as sort of a new product, right? In the same way that we would see the Confederate battle flag, we usually see the symbol of it, you know, bright red, bright white, bright blue, and not necessarily in its aged version. And most people haven't seen one of those original Confederate battle flags. I mean, I happen to have seen one because it, you know, I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and there's one housed at the um, Museum of the Con- of the Confederacy in Richmond. But, you know, and it's tattered and worn. And so uh, the color is really coming from pointing to making a reproduction. And then the brighter right, white ones are really pointing to this idea of what does it mean to reproduce something in the present, the present tense. There's another possible relationship with American history embedded in the original object, and I wonder if it was part of the attraction for you. The truce flag at the National Museum of American History was a, do- was a donation from Elizabeth Custer, the wife of uh, George Armstrong Custer, who played, who, who was both a Civil War officer, but then, of course, played uh, an infamous role in American continental imperialism. And there are these kind of layers of meaning caught up in that. Is your piece and your engagement with the original object interested not just in, say, the two flags, but also in kind of a broader story of um, imperialism, conquest, and, and even how those Western campaigns against indigenous people came out of out of the Civil War? I think it's a really, really wonderful reading of the piece. Certainly, you know, most of us associate Custer not so much with the Civil War, but with the the plight and genocide of First Nations and Native peoples. So, yes, I love I love that this dishcloth has the, that became a truce flag has the ability to absorb all of those histories. And to point to something else that you were saying, you know, after 12 years of living in Richmond, Virginia, I I know that there's a way in which the United States of America can look to the South. And, you know, when I started doing work around the Confederate battle flag, um, people would say, oh, this is a Southern problem, a Southern problem. And I'd say, first of all, it's not a Southern problem. Uh, you know, Harvard and most of, I'm picking on Harvard, but institutions that this, that this country thinks of pridefully made their money off of the enslavement of African people and people of African descent. To say nothing of the infrastructure across much of the South. 19th century infrastructure and such was quite often built by slaves leased out to the state. Exactly. And so this notion that this is a Southern problem sort of relinquishes or takes uh, takes a little bit of burden off of the North. But it's not only a Northern story, it's a global story, right? So it's a global story. I mean, the transatlantic slave trade route and imperialism and the genocide of native peoples, this is a this is a global story. And so these are the things that I think that monumental cloth, the flag that we should know, that this this object 
can get us to delve into. So it's not just the history of a moment, but the fact that there's a lot more history behind us and there's a lot more future ahead of us. And what are we doing to look at our histories and to dig deeply into our histories in order to figure out where we're going next? And I also say that when it comes to truce flags themselves and this particular truce flag, even the Civil War, when we look at it quite pointedly, is how much of this particular truce flag was used as a kind of gentleman's agreement? How much of there was of people who, Confederate soldiers and armies, who were enemies of the state? Nobody went to jail. People got to keep their property. There was this sense of a fair amount of white male privilege that was in play in this very war. And then Reconstruction had its attempt, and then very quickly followed by Jim Crow laws and mass lynchings. You know, this this nation has yet to reckon with its past in, in a decisively committed way. And that's not to say that there haven't been strides made. I mean, I'm a professor at a prominent college, and, and I'm an African-American woman. Amherst in Massachusetts? Yes, Amherst, Massachusetts, which I have to say, I'm very proud of my alma mater. I'm not proud of its founding father, because Lord Jeffrey Amherst is known for doing very despicable things for Native peoples as well. But that that is actually what people did at the time, you know, to dehumanize whoever you decide is going to be the enemy, to call them animals, and then treat them as less than human, which I have to say is a tactic that is coming out of our own White House right now. So the tactic and the strategies are not new. They're old, old, old strategies that are embedded in this nation, and we have to reckon with them. To make one historical note, to amplify what what you just said, not only was land not taken away from Confederate soldiers or slave owners, but there was no project, zero project of post-Civil War land redistribution which I think about and and work on in a particular way now. Included in the exhibition in Philadelphia is a work called Reconstruction Exercise, which is an installation of floor looms, I think there are nine of them, set up to weave replicas of the of the truce flag. And visitors are invited to, you know, physically, manually send the looms shuttle through the warp to to add to a replica flag that each loom is making. Why did you devise a way to activate visitors? Well, you know, I've been an artist and I've been an educator for a very long time, so it's hard for me to separate those two things. But I do know that if we don't know this truce flag, then how do we come to know anything, right? <laughs> like, so I sort of thought, well, you come to know things by doing, right? That's one way of coming to know. One of the things that I pointed to this earlier, this idea of, you know, we are surrounded by cloth all the time, but most people don't even understand the way that cloth is made. And there's a metaphor in that, you know, you sort of live in this nation, but you live, we live with this cognitive dissonance of a nation that's prides itself on democracy, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and also genocide and slavery and subjugation. So thinking about that as sort of the warp and the weft of the nation, like there's a way in which we understand something generally about this nation, but we don't understand the specificity of the fabric of our nation. So to understand the specificity of the structure of this truce flag, the waffle weave that makes this previously 
well, this cloth of this cloth that was intended to be a dishcloth, um, to understand its structure, to understand its how how difficult it is to actually make a cloth. So what I what I'm hoping for and is already happening in the exhibition space is that people are learning something about the structure of cloth and their metaphors that are rich there. As they're learning how to weave, they're making all sorts of mistakes, they're glitches. There's evidence of the weaving. There's evidence of people learning and trying to understand something and to know something. And, that, you know, there's space for understanding that we don't get it. <laughs> and we're not necessarily good at a lot of things that we think we might be good at. Like we can take cloth for granted, but if we had to make it, could we? And those pieces, when they come off the looms, will be filled with the marks of people learning and trying and doing and um, and they'll also be elongated versions of the truce flags because we're not making them and then cutting them off when they come to the length of the original. We're just continually making them. So they'll be quite long. And that sense talks about, uh, you know, length and length of cloth and spinning a yarn and all those metaphors that we have in our language <laughs> around cloth and um, and time. Uh, because people are collectively helping to weave those those collective reproductions of the truce flag, they don't get to leave with them. They leave with the experience of having worked on them. But there are also these nine desks that are in the space, like old school desks where the wooden desks with a space under the seat to hold your books and then the a, a wooden desk that you sit at. And we retrofitted the wooden desk part, the table part, with a laser etched version, textured version of the truce flag so that people can sit there with black pieces of Tyvek, uh, so really strong paper, and white white crayons and do a rubbing so that they can understand the texture of the cloth. And they actually can walk with those, you know, those those rubbed versions of the truce flag as a symbol more than a cloth itself. People can make those and take them. And, you know, that's another way of learning. Like, uh, it's clear when you walk into that space that you're in an educational space because you see these desks and people invite you to sit at the desk and be part of and make and make and take a version of the truce flag. And then you walk a little further into the space and you can sit at a loom and understand the structure of the cloth a little more. And so I'm just hoping in those ways of engagement that there will be children and adults who don't know this truce flag, but will remember the experience of when they first encountered it and how it was made and its structure and really become familiar with its symbol physically, but also potentially metaphorically. Let me add one bit of context for this act of construction or making. Over the last decade or so, you've made a bunch of works that in one form or another, deconstruct the Confederate battle flag. Sometimes that's literally with an act of fraying or decomposition or deconstruction, such as in Unraveling and Unraveled from 2015. There is uh, an untitled work in 2016. And, and sometimes you, you act upon the flag in a way that dismantles it and reduces it to thread. Sometimes you overlay something else over it. But the idea of taking apart 
a certain standard has been in your work for a while and this new work is, you know, I don't want to say an opposite because that's simplistic, but it, it does some opposite things. So, yeah, so in 2015, as a sesquicentennial celebration or recognition of the end of the Civil War is when I started doing these pieces called Unraveling. And Unraveling, I invited people to join me one by one. So I was always present and someone would be standing shoulder to shoulder with me. And I would need to explain to them the structure of cloth, most people, to explain to them the structure of cloth. And we would very slowly work to undo a Confederate battle flag. And when I say slowly, I mean, I would be, I do these performances and they last maybe two hours. So maybe I'm with each person for a couple of minutes. So 50 50 people or so might come through in two hours. And we maybe get through half an inch or an inch of a five foot flag. And then the piece that I made prior to that was actually the end game. My studio uh, manager, my studio assistants and I took a Confederate cotton battle flag and unraveled it thread by thread and arranged those threads in piles of red, white, and blue. So this idea that if the Civil War actually ended, what would it, why, why, again, why would we even know this Confederate battle flag? And wouldn't it, the flag would have been taken down, which of course it was after the war, but then it reemerged again. And unraveling is really the one, the one where I invite people to participate with me is really about the work that needs to be done, the slow work that is done by so many people and that continuously needs to be done to get this nation back to its ideal self, which one might argue it has never been. I, you know, when you when you actually said that I've been working on those pieces for ten years, I thought, well, no, not ten years, but it is true that the first Confederate battle flag piece that I made was in 2010. So you're right. <laughs> um, again, the interviewer knows more about the artist's work than the artist does. But that wasn't a, that was an unraveling piece or a, a piece that was taken apart. It was a piece that actually the base of it is a, a Confederate flag and painted on a canvas. So it was actually not a Confederate flag in the sense of an, a purchased flag, but a Confederate, the symbol of a Confederate battle flag painted on a canvas and then has overlaid on it an American flag made made from, or the U.S. flag made from um, hairdressing techniques to stand in for the presence of African-American people. A couple of times in the exhibition, you point to, I don't know if tropes is the right word, but forms, visual and otherwise, from minimalism. Um, there's a, a kind of reference to you know the Richard Serra verb list, and a and, and that list form was particularly popular among minimalists in the '60s. And even the way in which you describe monumental kind of recalls minimalist form, not only in the 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 way the thing that stands in for the truce flag looks, the textile itself, but also the mode of display, kind of an angled plywood riser, if you will. Are there references to that? period that are important to you or that you are hoping the viewer will put together? That's interesting, Tyler. I had not given it that context at all, but I, but I think that's a really great reading. I mean, I certainly, I think, again, that artwork has the capacity to absorb art history as well, but I wasn't necessarily pointing to white male minimalists. <laughs> no, but that, that period, I probably should have made this clear, that period of, of big white male minimalism is also the period of, of the peak 60s civil rights era. 
That's right. Oh, right, right. So in that way, yes, I will take that. And so one of the one of the pieces that I think does that pretty effectively is a list that is on the wall. And it's just a list of vinyl text that is written in red. And it's written in red because the, the very minimal design elements on the truce flag are these three little red stripes, matter, root, dyed, naturally dyed, red stripes. And so we decided to use the same kind of color to make uh, up this list. And the piece is called Propaganda. And the list is, is comprised of over 200 ways in which people can purchase merchandise that have the Confederate battle flag on them. Like that's how pervasive the Confederate battle flag is. And the, um, I have to say the battle flag doesn't appear but one place in the show. And the word Confederate only the word Confederate actually appears in some of the wall text, but on one piece that that is this piece that lives in between museum display and actual artwork. And that is that we needed to have wall that sort of drew the viewer's eye into the space where monumental and many are are housed, are displayed. And so I said, well, let's just use that signature red color. And so when we went to Benjamin Moore to pick the signature red color. The paint company, I think, right? The paint company. The person who picked up the paint for us said, you're not going to believe what this color is called. And the color is called Confederate red. And that, again, points to just how pervasive this notion of the Confederacy as part of our country and maybe, you know, you know just our everyday without without challenge, without critique, lives with us. So the, the person who found that paint color for us then felt the need to dig deeper and found that if you go online, it's actually been rebranded as patriotic red, which is worse. <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine a German paint company having a paint called Nazi red. Exactly. And then rebranding it as patriotic red. <laughs> right. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Like, this is the problem. So we actually made that into a piece so that we kept the wall that red color. We chose to keep it that wall color. And then it actually says Benjamin Moore with a number of the Benjamin Moore paint color and Confederate red. Because it just points to how easy it is to imbibe and take in this history passively. And, and I think that's dangerous. Finally, I was struck by how your show at uh, the Fabric Workshop is almost to the day coincident with the publication of David Silkenat's new book. Uh, he's an historian. His book is titled Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. And it's a book that goes through the surrender of many Confederate armies and and, and, and the impact thereof. And here you're addressing, obviously, uh, the most prominent Confederate army surrender. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. Maybe there's something about our cultural and political moment that is pointing to Confederate surrenders, plural, as a relevant thing now. My, my question is, do you think this is all a big coincidence or do you think that there is a cultural moment here that, that both historians and artists might be picking up on? Well, I will tell you that David and I sort of found each other through the press around my exhibition. And, um, and then I immediately reached out to him and said, okay, how can we work together? I didn't know him before. 
and I just started reading his book, you know, one of the things that is evident is in, in that book is also this notion of the kind of gentleman, gentleman's agreement that like people could just know that they could surrender and they wouldn't become prisoners of war. You know, there was all this sort of like conceding to white male privilege over and over and over again. So yes, in terms of that pointing to something in our specific time, I'm of two minds about this, that we could say, yes, absolutely, given where we are in this political moment. But this political moment didn't happen overnight. This political moment, here we are because of all the political moments that have happened before. And again, America has a lot of work to do. And as an artist, I'm hoping that we can do this work collectively together. And it's not the same kind of work. You know, there are lots of different ways of doing this work that needs to be done. There's work that needs to be done on an institutional level, level on an individual level, on, on an educational level, on a governmental level. I mean, there's so many different levels. So it's a lot, a lot of work to be done. But it's not going to get done if we don't address it. And there's been a fissure from the beginning of this nation. And one could say that that crack has gotten wider, deeper, more grotesque. It plays itself out in things like white nationalism, imperialism, and then, you know, just white privilege. And here I'm really speaking about whiteness, not white people, <laughs> you know, right? You know, I, I want to make sure that I'm clear on that. And, and if we, if we don't see it, then it's really easy to take in notions of subjugation and take in notions of racism and xenophobia very passively and for our children to take those in as well. And then they grow up thinking they're either lesser than or better than depending on the poison that they've swallowed. This is a nation that is doling out a lot of poison a lot of time. So if we are not cognizant and seeing that with critical eyes, then we don't we have no defense against it and it becomes part of us. So that's the work that needs to be done. And it's always the work that's had to be needed to be done. And there is a way that there's a kind of urgency as we see America, the attempts on American democracy to take us back to the worst part of this nation as opposed to the bet better parts of this nation. And so in that sense, it seems like it's dire. A key text listeners might enjoy is Nell Irvin Painter's The History of White People, which explains and details how you know, Western cultures created the idea of whiteness. It's a, a multi-millennium, multi-millennia? Which one's the plural? Millennia? It's yeah. a multi-millennia... <laughs> story and it's it's um it's it's really fantastic sonia clark thanks so much oh it's always a pleasure always a pleasure tyler thank you so much for the work that you do too and for inviting me to this conversation i appreciate it the museum of contemporary art san diego presents trevor paglin sights unseen at its downtown location now through june 2nd Featuring more than 100 works from the MacArthur Genius Award-winning artist, this mid-career survey traveling from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is the first exhibition to present Paglin's early photographic series alongside his recent sculptural objects and new work with AI. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. The Pulitzer presents Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt, the first exhibition to examine specific periods in the rich history of Egypt, when clashes between competing leaders, 
religions, and ideologies resulted in damage to and destruction of sacred and political images. Focusing on the legacies of pharaohs Hathshepsut and Akhenaten, as well as the destruction of objects in late antiquity, the exhibition will pair damaged works, from fragmented heads to altered inscriptions, with undamaged examples. With nearly 40 masterpieces on loan from the renowned collection of the Brooklyn Museum, Striking Power is on view from March 22nd through August 11th, 2019. Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt is organized in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Analia Saban. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's latest focus exhibition features Saban. It includes new work, both tapestry and painting referencing objects that address abstraction in the grid via circuit boards and computer chips. As is typical in her work, Saban addresses her subjects through the playful subversion of her materials. In this case, copper wire and acrylic paint woven into place. The exhibition is on view in Fort Worth through May 12th. Saban has exhibited in group exhibitions at the Hammer, LACMA, the Decordova Sculpture Park and Museum, the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, and more. And she's had a solo exhibition at the Blaffer Art Museum in Houston. Analia Saban, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. When did you become interested in weaving and why? So I was doing a, a fellowship at the Getty Research Institute, and it's kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime uh, experience because they choose only one artist a year, and then you you spend like the whole year at the Getty, and you have access to basically everything. And I was sharing this one year was about materials, and I was the only artist among a group of art historians, and all the art historians were also researching materials. So we were all these, like, material nerds living together and researching together and talking, like, you know, like, all day long because you live, like, you know, you go home at night and then, you know, you continue the conversation. So it's really a wonderful experience. And one of my co-fellows was very interested in weaving. So even though we were extremely busy with the fellowship itself and, you know, the Getty makes it, you know, a full schedule type of experience, she would come home at night and she, well, she basically bought a huge loom for her stay at the Getty and which took over her whole apartment and, and she would come home at night and just weave all night, basically. So I was so intrigued by this because I could hear her. I could hear this, like, you know, we live together, like all the apartments, you know, in an LA building. So very like thin walls. And I could hear the apartment next door to me. And like, you know, this sound of weaving, which was really beautiful, like this mechanical machine going. And and then at the end of the fellowship, she lived in Scotland. So she's like, oh, I don't know what to do with my looms. So I'm like, well, I have an idea. You could like just, you know, leave it in my studio. So I got this loom and then I had it for a while and I didn't know what to do with it. And then just by looking at it and, you know, it's such a beautiful mechanical object. So it's kind of like having a grand piano. It was just like a nice instrument to have at the studio. And then after a few months, I started to come up with ideas of how to use it. Yeah, let me let me jump in there. So I think that you were a fellow at the GRI in fifteen in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen, and it's now twenty nineteen. So it sounds like you had the thing a while before you began to solve what it could do for you. Yeah. 
I mean, I understand your entire practice is built around materials and materiality and doing clever things with materials, taking traditional forms and adapting materials to them. So at what point did you go from thinking that you had this loom that was beautiful to thinking that you were going to use it with something? Yeah, so something that, you know, I always been interested in is in the fact that we as artists and, you know, consumers, we use these traditions from painting. So we basically, you know, if you want to make a painting, you just go to the art store and you buy some canvas. And it's kind of like, you know, they sell like maybe like three different types of canvas. They sell linen canvas, they say cotton canvas, they say prime they sell prime canvas or maybe some synthetic canvas, you know, so it's this very limited kind of vocabulary. And then in terms of paint, you have, you know, oil paint, acrylic paint, uh, maybe some watercolors and so on. But it's kind of always, you know, you're always dealing with, you know, a set of materials. And 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 then sometimes, you know, I want to think about, okay, so why? You know, why do we paint on canvas? You know, it used to be that that... We were painting on canvas because paintings were very thick and they were made with oil that, you know, it takes forever to dry. So you would like, you know, paint on the canvas and then that would allow, you know, double circulation of air. So then, you know, the paint would dry faster and you could also roll it and maybe it was better for storage and so on. But like it really came from convention that we even though like let's say nowadays you might want to paint with acrylic paint, you go with. You go to the store and you buy acrylic paint and you just paint it on canvas. And for instance, acrylic paint doesn't need to dry with this double circulation because it dries really, it dries really, really fast. So I always think about, you know, okay, like why, why are we like stuck in convention? Why, why do we paint? Period. You know, like why do we care about art? What is this? You know, what is paint? What is canvas? What is it made of? Where does it come from? Where does this convention comes from? So it's it was an idea that like maybe by you know, in this case with the loom, by starting to make my own canvas and changing the way maybe canvas was made, I could like kind of start like deconstructing some of those traditions and start thinking about what I could do or whether like some of the answers or whether some, or maybe I could ask more questions by making. So it was kind of like opening it up and like trying to research, you know, what we're dealing with in terms of materials. I, uh, at some point when thinking about this body of work, realized that I've never given much thought to how canvases as used by painters are made i assume they're they're woven and i'm guessing you realized that a lot faster than i did <laughs> <laughs> they are woven yeah <laughs> so is was that part of why you were interested in the loom that you realized the relationship between that physical thing and 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 painting's history so basically i was thinking okay so why do we paint on canvas right so there is this whole history about you know why why we paint on canvas but i was also thinking about if i let's say use acrylic paint i don't need to paint on canvas anymore because as i said it dries really fast i don't need like you know this double circulation so i could like you know paint of course on a piece of cardboard or a piece of wood but then i was thinking like what if i 
change the order of things. So I realized in this case, I wanted to do something different with the loom. So I realized that acrylic paint, because it's basically a polymer, it's a plastic, I could like paint it on a surface and then like pick up that, like peel off that brush stroke and hold it in my hand, like almost as a sculpture, like an object. And then I realized that I could actually weave acrylic paint through the linen in the loom. And then it was kind of an idea that like I could change the order of things because usually we paint on canvas. So in this case, I was weaving acrylic paint through the canvas itself. So as I was weaving, I was inserting the paint through the weave. And I thought, you know, that was a way of like, you know, just rethinking what paint can be. In this case, it can be a polymer. It can be mostly a plastic if it's acrylic paint and what canvas can be. And in this case, it's something that I can weave and change the order of things. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the introduction, the new works that are in Fort Worth are woven materials like copper wire and acrylic paint. And they look like, I mean, visually, they reference our, our, you know, air quotes, reproductions of circuit boards, computer chips and such. I assume without knowing that the relationship between looms and punch cards, which helped mechanize weaving, interested you. Punch cards were used in early computing. They were how data was inputted into early computers, such as the 1945 ENIAC, the first computer uh, by some counts at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm, so I'm guessing, uh, without knowing, that you made that connection. Absolutely. So I was I read a book about the jacquard loom, which is quite fascinating because even a loom, any loom, is basically a very early computer. Even a mechanical loom that doesn't have an outlet or you know a cable or anything. So basically, any loom is basically binary code, right? Like the thread goes up and down, so it's on and off. So it's basically binary code. And then you can kind of very simply with some pegs, you can program it. So you can say, okay, like it will go chew up, chew down and make a very simple pattern. Then the jacquard loom became this very fascinating machine because they were able to reproduce a pattern from one loom to the other. So if you wanted to, like, let's say, design a fabric that had flowers in it, you could record that pattern in a set of punch cards and then grab, take the pile of punch cards and send it to, let's say, I don't know, if you were producing the first pattern in France, you could send it to England and then they could, like, produce the same pattern in the fabric with the same flowers using the punch cards. So... It was kind of the first way of recording information. So you could record one pattern to the other, to the other loom. So it, I read this fascinating history of that. The book is called Chakart's Web. And it's basically explaining how, you know, that was the way of recording memory. And then when the first IBM computers came about, or, or the one you mentioned, they were using the same system that they borrowed from the weaving industry to record this, the first information in the computers. And I found that fascinating. And I thought it would be a good time to look back at that history because we are surrounded with computers, but we're also craving, you know, like the, the handmade. So I felt that by weaving tapestries and combining them with circuit boards, it was kind of a good moment to like reflect on a history that really has touched us all these years. One of the things about the new works that struck me is that they reference a certain history of abstract painting. And 
you know, particularly hard edge painting. There's kind of a little bit of like John McLaughlin here. Are you, are you intentionally in these works interested in in melding those two histories or three histories? I, I love, you know, being part of that dialogue. I mean, I feel like art history is just such a fascinating dialogue to be in, you know, and and then it's always, it's hard to escape it too, you know, and, and in terms of abstraction, I always ask myself that question. I mean, because abstraction has this aura to it, right? Like, you know, the black square, like Malevich, I mean, it's like a masterpiece, but it's a black square, you know, so we're all like, I mean, it's kind of rationally you can say okay it's the black square and how important that was for art history to reach that point and you know genius and then you also think well it's also a black square (laughs) and that's that you know what I mean so I always think it's really fascinating to look back at art history and like see you know what became important what didn't and and also in terms of, you know, people, minimalism. So people like Sol LeWitt, Agnes Martin, and thinking about, okay, I mean, same, you know, we have this geometric abstraction, minimalism. It has this like very incredible aura around it. But then you're like, well, I mean, it's just the grid. And then you think about the grid in a painting. And then you think about the grid in like the bathroom tiles. And you're like, well, I mean, they're both grids, you know, but like one has this like very impressive aura to it and then when you're taking a shower you're like oh these are just my bathroom tiles and like I was thinking about this connection and whether like you know abstraction comes from anywhere or does is it like born in a vacuum you know like is abstraction just completely isolated from everything and is it just about abstraction or is does it connect to things like Mondrian, Boogie Boogie, you know, like, so I always find that connection with abstraction quite fascinating. And and in terms of, you know, computers, they also deal with a lot of abstraction and abstract thoughts. And, and then, so I thought it'd be an interesting conversation for the show. You often, but not always, insist on your work being on a wall. So works that don't necessarily have to be wall-mounted are. And so we've talked a little bit, and I think we're going to talk more in a minute, about paintings important to you. Is the traditional mode of display of a painting on a wall a fundamental thing for you, even when the work isn't immediately recognizable as paint on linen or canvas? Yeah, I think I'm just fascinated by the fact that we honor painting the way we honor painting. You know, it's I think about painting, like what is a painting? I mean, it is this object that's hanging on the wall. And what does that mean? You know, it is an object. I mean, we see it more like as a two-dimensional surface, but, you know, it's a full object, right? That like has like edges and has materials, you know, maybe it's framed, maybe you turn it around and you see a whole history in the back. I mean, it has all the layers in it. Something that I found fascinating when I was at the Getty, I was able to look at paintings through a microscope and to look at all the layers that make a painting and then to see like it's basically archaeology because you can like dig into the painting and you can see that maybe if it's an older work from the Renaissance, you know, the 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 pigments were ground by hand. So you see some rocks on the surface and then you see like, you know, the inner layers. So it's really like a three-dimensional surface with a lot, a lot of content in it. 
so somehow I'm just fascinated by then this object that you hang on the wall. And I think many of the works that I've done, like let's say pour a piece of, you know, a slab of concrete and then I hang it on the wall. And it's really about that relationship that I'm like, okay, what is a painting? I mean, if, if a painting is just like ground rocks, you know, to make, let's say the color blue on a surface, can it compare to a slab of concrete that it's also like, you know, sand and rocks and it can also go on the wall, you know? So I, 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 I'm fascinated by this relationship between the two. One of my favorite works of yours is a concrete on canvas work that references a pre-canvas history of painting. I'm thinking of concrete slab with imprint of six horizontal wood beams missing and, and missing corner. Uh, that whole thing's the title, which references panel painting, the paint support, if you will, that preceded canvas. Do you remember the point in your art student education or studio experience when your interest migrated from paint and painting as specific and distinct materials to the things they went on, whether it's linen or or panel? Yeah, I mean, actually, my background wasn't always in traditional painting, and I think that's what made it, I guess that's where the word came out, a bit weird, like, let's say. I wasn't trained as a traditional painter. I, I was always doing well I started doing video and film and then I didn't like the way they were teaching film in the films film school because it was very commercial and I just wanted to do a more artistic type of video and film and I went to UCLA for my master's and and then all of a sudden like I felt that the painting department even though like so in my master's I was doing an MFA but in new genres not in painting or in you know more like traditional mediums so new genres was like the one area where you could do anything you wanted kind of thing. Famous program with professors like Paul McCarthy and Mary Kelly and John Baldessari whose studio you later inherited. Sorry go on. Exactly which was really I mean I was like you know it's kind of very impressive to have Paul McCarthy as a teacher when you're like, you know, in your very early 20s and then you watch, you know, his very famous video painter and he's like splashing painting all over and, you know, like, I don't know, I, I don't even remember, but it kind of looks like he's probably like having sex with a huge paint tube and throwing it and and jumping on the studio and painting with ketchup and, you know, all the things McCarthy And then so having him as a professor and then on the other hand, like seeing my classmates who are like very engaged in in painting and in that dialogue. So I always felt a bit as an outsider. And and I think that was my focus. I was like, you know, what is this? (laughs) What am I dealing with? You know, on the one hand, like I have, you know, Paul's reaction to painting. On the other hand, I have, you know, a very academic, very professional take on the subject, which I appreciate and respect but I I always felt a bit of confusion and and I think from that confusion came a set of works that I think it's mostly asking questions I'm not sure if I can find answers to anything but I think those questions keep coming up and keep coming back through making work it might you know one way of putting that is that you're more interested in how paintings are made than in paintings themselves so another example in which you're interested in making rather than necessarily the thing is seascape with blue tape which references how painters make painting often by using tape to 
uh, mark off areas of the thing onto which they don't want paint to go. I like that work a lot. It always kind of cracks me up. Do you have a, you know, is there an origin story to when making an artwork, a metaphor for the act of painting became primary for you? I made that piece, uh, it's called The Painting Ball, and that was my thesis project. So, like, that really, so that work was about, <clears throat> I bought 100 paintings from all different artists, and so different artists and different art practices. So some came from my, my friends who are painters, professional painters or becoming professional painters. Some were from thrift stores. I followed Craigslist and I was going to see a lot of people who had like paintings in their garage and they wanted to get rid of them. So I would call them maybe Sunday painters. And some were like Chinese reproductions from like, you know, people that reproduce, let's say, Van Gogh or Dali, like, you know, thousands and thousands of times. And they are like oil on canvas made in China, but they have that original painting quality and they sell them because people like to have, you know, an oil oil painting, even though it's a cheap reproduction made in China, but there is something about that. So I collected all that and then I, I took apart all the thread and I I had like this huge pile of threads, so I turned it into this ball. So it's basically like unraveling all the hundred canvases and turning that into a ball. And I feel like that really opened up a lot of ideas. So that makes, I mean, that's interesting because it sounds like your interest in how the thing was done is coincident with your discovery and exploration of the materiality of the thing, um, that they were immediately inseparable. Absolutely. That's probably a really great transition to the last thing I want to talk about, and that is probably your most famous works, your, your draped marble works, in which you literally drape hunks of marble over, over sawhorses. They are, uh, you know, they're, they're absolutely, how'd you do that? Moments when, when encountered. I am sure you've told their origin story before, but I couldn't find it, at least not textually. So I understand your interest in marble, you know, goes back uh, again to, to, to kind of place in the history of painting and that the draped hunks and the way they flow is a reference to Baroque paintings and the way garments and textiles in Baroque paintings flow over the, the surface of paintings, which is itself a metaphor for painting, the way the brush moves across the canvas. But I, I, I'm still curious how you got the idea that bending marble was possible or, or doable or interesting. When, where, how? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, all the references you mentioned were important. And, and also the fact that, you know, there is this obsession or, you know, a classic obsession of representing drapery, right? Like to do it like, you know, so the best possible way, like the same way of like drawing hands, representing drapery. And, and that's in drawing and it's also in marble, you know? So, I mean, as I said, maybe from like a more outsider perspective, I wanted to see what, how I could drape marble without having that classical training. So the result is this kind of broken thing. And, you know, it's not like, it's very different from the drapery that you see in, you know, Michelangelo, let's say. I mean, how, how did you, how did you realize though, that drape, that marble could be bent in such a way? 
So it was really like, first it was that like kind of naive approach. I mean, can I drape marble in a different way than, you know, Michelangelo did? So it was kind of that, that was like the first question. And then, and then I just, you know, I figured it out and I figured it out mainly from living in LA because at the time I was actually commuting between New York and LA. I did this for three years. And the one thing that I started noticing was that things in New York are totally broken. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, very chaotic city, but they're not broken in the same way that, you know, LA is broken. I mean, LA is broken. For instance, I had in my studio a very huge line that happened in one previous earthquake. And it was kind of the, in the middle of the studio, like the whole floor was totally unleveled concrete floor we should say concrete floor and it was a headache for you know trying to level any table because i always had to compensate it so much because the the floor was so uneven but it happened because of earthquakes and then i was thinking like you know even though we don't see it i mean like the earth is folding and it's changing on a constant basis sometimes we do see it if an earthquake happens not on wood one for a while but but it is changing it's and it's also changing because of you know trees and you know roots that grow underneath and then the sidewalk starts opening up and folding so many different reasons and then i just kind of saw it that you could like just break it in a way that like you know just to have enough of an angle so if you break it along a line and you break break enough for that curve to happen, then and then I had to kind of put the pieces in that shape. But, you know, you could like have at least the illusion that marble was actually folding and draping. This is probably the dumbest possible question about those works. But why sawhorses? That just happened. So I was thinking, you know, a few different references. Part of it was this thing of living between New York and LA because I saw, I don't know, there was something about like changing the landscape every two weeks because that's how often I was traveling. I was doing two weeks, two weeks. And and thinking about LA in relationship to earthquakes and then thinking about New York in relationship to these wooden sawhorses that basically block you whenever you're walking because you know they signal that that you know there the site there is a construction site or something so you can walk that way so you have to change direction so i saw these sawhorses everywhere but i also was thinking of marble in terms of where it comes from i mean marble comes from all over right like it can come from brazil under the ocean it can come from afghanistan it comes from you know all different places but kind of the romantic idea of marble is usually this carrara marble from italy like this is kind of what we have as our you know stereotype of marble and and then i was thinking of this type of like italian villa and instead of having the laundry hanging then you would have like you know the marble kind of draped and hanging outside in order for it to dry. So I had this kind of, it was more like a poetic a poetic idea and a, a way of supporting the material. There's a lot of 18th century painting, Hubert Robert and such, in which laundry is hanging from Italian ruins. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't think of that, actually. Marvelous. Analia Saban, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.